This is the Soil Sense podcast where we believe that building healthier soils is not just a prescription, but rather a pursuit. It's a journey that requires collaboration, curiosity, and communication among farmers, researchers, agronomists, consultants, and extension. You're going to hear their stories and discover how and why they're working together to make sense out of what's happening in the soil. Hey there, thank you so much for joining us for another episode of Soil Sense. I'm your host, Tim Hambridge. Soil health definitely has been in the spotlight in recent years, and no topic has been drawing more attention lately than the concept of soil carbon. Specifically, the question of can farmers optimize the amount of carbon they pull from the air and store in the soil based on their farming practices? And can that carbon sequestration reach levels where it could be part of the solution to climate change? These are big questions, and there's definitely a lot of underlying science behind them to unpack. Unfortunately, much of the exuberance surrounding these topics in the media glosses over this science. So to put this concept into perspective, we have on the show today Dr. Mark Liebig with USDA ARS and Dr. Kaylee Gash, who's a soil ecologist with North Dakota State University. This audio was recorded at the Catching Carbon Live workshop put on by the North Dakota Corn Council, NDSU Extension, and the USDA. Because it was recorded live, you might have to forgive a little bit of background noise here, but trust me, this content is worth sticking around for to the end. Starting off with Dr. Mark Liebig, who sets some good context on why this whole carbon conversation is so important. The context is, is that, you know, we're dealing with changes in our weather. You know, and, and these are, you know, these projections are made by people who are way smarter than me, but you know, we're kind of experiencing, you know, things are getting hot, things are dry. And, you know, in, in some respects, you know, this is going to offer up some opportunities for longer growing seasons for those of us in sort of the northern areas where we're growing crops, but it's also going to create some challenges. And that probably the biggest challenges that we're going to deal with is, is dealing with these extremes. And, you know, we're in the northern Great Plains, we already are used to dealing with extremes, but could it actually get more extreme? And the challenge is there is that when extremes in, in weather combine with sort of questionable management of the soil, you can get some really bad situations happening, whether it's sort of the Dust Bowl or 82 years later in South Dakota, where you, know, you had no cover on the soil, you had a major windstorm, and you got a lot of soil in the ditch, okay? That's a lot of lost fertility that's going out, you know, off your fields. These things could be part of our, our future. And so it's no surprise that when we think about dealing with the challenges in the future, we got to look to the soil. And I'm not going to say that it's going to save us, but it's going to be a really big part in how we create systems that are robust and resilient to these extremes. And so this is why I think Soil carbon and soil health are often a, a pretty good partnership. I think they go together really well most of the time. Now, there are examples, you know, as a scientist, I always got to talk about the disclaimers, right? But, you know, things like acidification can kind of get in the way here. Uh, but most of the time, carbon and soil health go well along together. And so I think it, in some respects, it kind of simplifies things because Soil health is something that's been our, in our vernacular for over 20 years now. We understand soil health and the practices that enhance it. This is a good big part of what, Abby, what you and Kaylee and others have done here you know, in, in North Dakota is promoting soil health. So that's good. We've got a foundation of practices that we can go off of. 
Soil has always been a sink for carbon, but over the decades, as more land has been converted to cultivated cropland, we've released a lot of that stored carbon back into the atmosphere. So where have we been on this whole issue of carbon in the Great Plains? Well, uh, if you look at the, the range of measurements under native conditions versus those in cropland, there's a lot of spread. But when you distill down the data, what you find is that we've had a pretty big drop in carbon because of that conversion, upwards of over 40%. It's about a, a fifth of the total carbon in the continental United States we've lost from this conversion to cropland. And so what that says is that, well, there's an opportunity to be able to fill that gap with good management. Now, if we look at what's happened over time is, is that we kind of hummed along under native you know, vegetation. And then there was that conversion, which initially required tillage. It was a lot of disturbance and there was a rapid drop rapid drop in that carbon level until you established a new lower baseline based upon whatever that management was at the time. And then at some time, there was a transition towards improved management. And you know, I think about our systems out west, that was probably a movement towards reduced tillage. And as we improved our, our sort of our, our water use efficiency, we started cropping annually so we could get those you know, root material and, and riser deposits into the soil annually. And then you begin seeing carbon being increasing slightly. Not, not a smooth line by no means because we're all subject to the vagaries of weather and so forth. So there's dips and, and there's rises based upon how much biomass is going into the soil. But you hope that it's increasing with these new forms of management. Now, you know, this may be where we're at today. I don't know where we're gonna be at tomorrow. And that's where I think talking about you know, soil health strategies and how they fit in with increasing carbon becomes really important. And that's a big part of what we're going to focus on here for the balance of today's episode, soil health strategies and the relationship with increasing carbon. Starting with the basics here, Dr. Kaylee Gash lays out some of the fundamentals of carbon fixation. When it comes to carbon, we're going to start with CO2, carbon dioxide, a lot of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. And the way that we get that in the soil is through plants. Okay, so anything that photosynthesizes, so plants, algae, cyanobacteria, mosses, those kinds of things, they're all using energy from the sun. They're taking in that CO2, they're building carbohydrates, things as simple as sugar, glucose, but then they're also building things like cellulose that give them the, the structure to grow up tall towards that sunlight. So that's the process that we call fixation. Okay, so CO2 going into the plant being turned into carbohydrates. And then plant cells, very similar to our cells, are doing their metabolism. They also need to produce energy and eat food in a way. And so along with that process, they're also respiring. And we don't typically think about this with plants because they're photosynthesizing, right? They're catching the carbon and bringing it into biomass. But the roots are not photosynthetic. They're below ground where it's dark. So they're respiring and releasing CO2. And at night, plants will also respire. So there is a little bit of back and forth, but of course we know that the fixation happens at a much higher rate than the respiration or there's a net gain, and that's how we end up with plant biomass. Okay, so that's carbon from the atmosphere going into the plant. And plants aren't the only organisms consuming carbon in a cropping system. Microbes are as well. But like plants, these microbes both consume and respire the CO2. Microbes are gonna take up the carbon, they're gonna use it to build biomass, 
They're going to make metabolites. That's the machinery that they use inside of their cells to actually do the work. And then they're going to be producing energy by burning up those carbohydrates, those carbon compounds, sugars, that fuels their day job. So in comes the carbon into the consumer. Some of it stays in the cell. Some of it goes back up into the atmosphere as CO2. Some of it kind of leaks out, maybe communication compounds, waste products, that kind of thing. So we know that CO2 is kind of this byproduct of respiration. Now, if you were to ask me how much of that carbon that goes into the cell leaves as CO2, that's kind of something we might want to know. It's anywhere between 20 to 60%. We call that a carbon use efficiency. But for 100 units of carbon that go into the cell, up to between 20 and 60% will be maintained in the cell to build more biomass, and the rest will leave. So that's a pretty wide range, really variable. So with this exchange happening in plants and microbes, how do we actually sequester the carbon in the soil itself? Well, whether plants are living and kind of exuding materials in, carbon materials into the soil, or they die and then their biomass goes into the soil, or those consumers have a life cycle as well. And so those dead carcasses will enter into that soil organic carbon pool. But that's also a food source. So decomposing material in the soil can also be consumed by those microbes. And we, we could track carbon as it kind of fluctuates between consumer biomass and soil organic carbon. And it could do that many, many times. Just know that each time a consumer eats some carbon, it's going to be respiring. So we're kind of like slowly leaking CO2 back up to the atmosphere. So this definitely doesn't sound like a sure thing here of just storing this carbon directly in the soil this way, right? I mean, it's more of a back and forth. And this brings us to soil carbon, which Kaylee says comes in two different categories. All right, soil carbon. That's how we get the carbon into the soil. But all soil organic carbon is not the same. And I like to break it into kind of two different categories. So we have the particulate and dissolved carbon. Think of this as fast food, okay? The particulates are like decomposed leaf material. Maybe it's a dead beetle carcass. It's stuff that you can still kind of identify where it came from. So it's only partially decomposed. It's, it's kind of fresh organic matter. And then there's dissolved carbon, which would be the stuff that's soluble in water. So think of this as like coffee or tea. Anytime you're running water through that material, you get carbon that gets dissolved in that water and kind of moves and hangs out in the water. It's soluble. And, and both of those forms of carbon are very good, like I said, fast food, readily available to microbes, soil organisms for food. So they're going to probably only hang out in this form for a short amount of time before they go back up into the atmosphere as CO2. That's very different than what we call stable carbon. And this is about 80% of the carbon that, that is in the soil is in this very stabilized form. So this kind of carbon is a little bit different chemically, but it tends to get kind of fixed, glued onto the surfaces of soil particles. It's what gives our soil its black color. And that stuff is kind of bound very tightly, and that's how it can accumulate over long periods of time. It's not as good a microbial food source, so it's, it's, it's stable, it's there for a long time. The other way carbon can get stabilized is when it kind of gets caught up as soil structure develops and that forms those aggregates, the little granules of soil structure that we love to see in a healthy soil. 
And carbon just kind of gets in the way, and it kind of gets locked up inside of that structure, and then it's no longer available for decomposition. So these two kind of sub-pools of carbon are interchangeable. We can have some of those fast food materials kind of transform or get caught up in that aggregation process and be stabilized. But we can also have the reverse happen where maybe those aggregates are broken open and exposed to air and microbes, and then they can be decomposed. Okay, it's like the time capsule has been broken open. So if the goal here is not only to remove carbon from the atmosphere, but to store it in the soil and keep it there, it's important to know the factors that cause carbon to either be lost or stored. So this is about as simple as it gets. We have, you know, CO2 coming down through plants, being consumed, kind of cycled internally, and then ultimately it makes its way into the soil. When we're talking about storing carbon in soil, we really want to target this kind of stable, really long-term storage pool, which, as I said, is already kind of the biggest pool of carbon. Now, we all know, too, that there are ways to lose it. This is the part that's hardest to talk about. Okay, so we want to keep the soil in place, want to keep the carbon in place, but we, we know that we can lose it to wind or water or uh, removal through erosion. Now, if you have a handful of soil in your hand and you blow on it, the stuff that's going to leave first are those little bits of decomposing organic matter because they're very lightweight, as well as the clay particles, which are very lightweight and microscopic. And that's where all of that carbon is sticking. Okay? Sand is not the best particle to hang on to, to carbon tightly. So those erosion events are pretty devastating to that carbon storage process. One helpful way to think about all of this capturing carbon, Mark says, is to think of it as inputs and outputs. And just as a quick heads up here, they may reference a graph that you obviously aren't able to see, uh, but you'll get the idea and we'll put a link in the show notes if you want to go back and watch the full video. So, okay, so how do we do this with respect to management? Well, increase your biomass production. That's number one, okay? Maintain that soil cover. Apply organic amendments. On the loss side, we want to minimize that soil disturbance as much as possible. If we can, don't burn that crop residue. That's a really good way to lose a lot of carbon. And we don't deal with a lot of organic soils, but I, I do some international work and work with people who do have organic soils. They are an amazing source of CO2. And so that's something that, that requires real careful management. Now, you do see on there, so I have managed residue quality in both inputs and outputs. Why is that? Well, you know, you recall Kaylee's graph on that C to N ratio? You may have noticed on one side, below 25 to 30 C to N, you had your legumes, okay? Those will actually enhance decomposition and actually facilitate a, a loss of carbon on your soil. We've, you know, we've had examples out near Minokan Farm where you know, they've been promoting a lot of cover crops, you know, farmers have, and they, they've you know, had great growth of cover crops on a wheat ground, and they come back the following spring and all the residue's gone. It really got the soil biology going, and it had a lot to do with the fact that you had a lot of low CDN ratio residue there as a good microbial source, and they just burned everything up. On the input side, that's more like your, your wheat residue, right? That's 80 to 1 C to N ratio there. That stuff's going to be around for a while. And so this issue of residue quality plays on both sides and I think becomes an important consideration with respect to 
your portfolio of crops that you include in your rotation. So it's just something to be mindful of. So what does this look like in terms of farming practices? Mark shared some data on which practices have been proven most effective at capturing carbon in the soil over time. So what you see here is that where you have tillage or where you have fallow, you're going to lose carbon or you're at, at best you're going to be neutral. Okay? It's only where you adopt no tillage and where you go into continuous cropping do we begin to see practices that are on the positive side of the ledger with respect to sequestering carbon. And that range is right around the 500 to 1,000 pounds of CO2 per acre per year. Uh, you can divide that by 3.67, and I think that gives you about 270 or so you know, pounds of carbon per acre per year. That's what that comes down to, and that's about roughly equivalent to, I know all these conversions, but I'm a scientist, 0.4 megagrams per hectare per year, which is what National Farming Union used for our region about a decade or so ago for their carbon credit program. So the data still supports that. So that's a good amount of carbon, or is that like, you know, what... To make it relative to good or bad? Yeah, or? you know, we're going to have a few slides about whether that's good or bad. Yeah, it, it's, it's, it's representative of our region is what it is. So these are for cropping systems. If you compare it to, say, a perennial grass, it totally changes the y-axis. You see, we had to extend that out quite a ways because that under perennial grass, it's about five times higher than our best no-till system aggregated data, of course, but, but again, this gets back to those carbon inputs, the continual you know, root input residue and lengthening of that growing season, it has a big effect on carbon storage. It really does. Now, if we know which practices help us capture more carbon, like he was just talking about, and there are more and more entities popping up wanting to incentivize this process to happen, how do farmers get paid? So that's some of what the literature is talking about right now. Say we do have you know, these programs and people get involved, how are people are gonna get paid? I've been looking at this a little bit and it seems like there's, you can get paid for the practice or you can get paid for the outcome, okay? If you get paid for the practice, which is sort of like, and if you did you know, in the mid 2000s, that it's basically on the ground field checks for, for saying within continuous cropping, no-till or something like that. And that can be checked through aerial images and so forth. It, it, what it does is it reduces those verification costs considerably. To pay for the outcome, well, now you're going to actually have to go out and do some measurements. And you're going to have to do it over time. Or you can rely on research sites where we're actually measuring CO2 flux continuously. You could have representative sites for certain practices within a region. And then you're going to get an annual assessment, a real-time assessment, every year. Probably is not going to happen, but maybe in the future, if this really takes off. The other thing is that maybe we're just going to rely on models. There's some robust models out there that you know we might use. I don't know, but probably what will happen is that there's probably going to be some sort of hybrid approach using different parts of these aspects in order to find something that's going to be you know cost effective. So if we really want to validate that carbon is actually getting sequestered and we want to get paid on those outcomes, we're going to need to know how to measure the outcome of these practices. Well, the standard way to do that right now, at least in a lab situation, is to burn it. We have instruments. Soil analytical labs have instruments. And we do this basically two ways that are two different methods that effectively do the same thing, and that's that we burn it. <laughs> 
Okay, so this material is combustible. It's just carbohydrates for the most part. And we can take a soil sample and put it in a furnace and heat it up like a kiln really high and we get like a mass loss. We can estimate organic matter that way. But we can also put it into an instrument where we burn it and then there's a sensor that measures the CO2 that comes out of that fire. And so we have multiple ways in the lab. We can do this really well in the lab. The challenge comes in sort of the variability of carbon across the landscape. But in terms of analytically, we have very good tools for accomplishing these measurements. These tools have been really helpful for getting the data that Mark shared earlier and understanding practices that lead to carbon capture. But measuring in the field, well, that's a bit of a different story. But if you want to estimate carbon in a field, that's a little bit more complicated. And the things that I'm going to recommend today are, first of all, minimize the residue in the sample. So if you think about it, if you're going to include some of this plant material, maybe it's on the surface, maybe it's accumulated. If you're going to include that in your soil organic carbon measurement, you're sort of inflating that number with fast food. Right? So you're not necessarily accurately measuring that stable pool. So at the very least, I recommend that people kind of move the residue away from you know, the soil surface before they sink the probe or take the sample, at the very least. Because you want an, an accurate estimation. Be aware of carbonates. So carbonates are a part of the carbon cycle that we haven't even talked about today, and that's because it's not something that's terribly biologically active. Okay? But they're very common in soils in this region. So let's say that a soil around here has 3% carbon total throughout the profile. At the shallow kind of portions, the topsoil, most of that's going to be organic form. But as you get maybe three feet down, most of that's going to be inorganic form or carbonate form. And so if you can, if you have the ability in your soil test, try to get the sample also analyzed for carbonate content because that'll kind of give you a better picture of total carbon in the soil. So just be aware of carbonates. Consider sampling or testing for that in addition to your organic carbon measurements. Sample as intensively as you can afford. This is always the hardest part. We're always limited by you know, money, the expense of analyzing these samples, or the labor of collecting them, or the time that it takes to collect them. But if, if you can come up with a, a way to take as many samples as possible that are spread across the field and then also at depth, that's going to help you just because that gives us more uh, power in our estimations and more accuracy. And then I always recommend georeferencing your sample locations, especially if you're, this is something that you're interested in tracking. Even if it's, you know, you don't anticipate coming back for five or ten years, it's really nice to just get a GPS location of those samples and keep that lat long record with your carbon values so that you can return to those values and compare over time. This area of field testing soil carbon at scale is certainly a sticking point for programs that want to reward farmers for these outcomes. With years of experience of trying to measure soil carbon, Mark is all too familiar with how challenging this can be. Yes, I've been doing this for over 30 years. I am kind of like a, a grump when it comes to doing this because I know all of the challenges that are associated with measuring carbon over time. 
I've been frustrated many times in my research because of this, because of all of that. Yes, you've got to return to the same location. You've got to collect, process, and analyze the same way. Uh, there's all kinds of errors associated with selecting a site, processing the sample, analyzing the sample, interpreting the data correctly that we have to be you know, cognizant of. It is labor intensive. The big thing is, is that, you know, if we're talking about, what, 270 pounds of carbon per acre per year, that's really small relative to the total stocks within your soil. I mean, it could be easily less than a tenth of a percent of carbon that you're trying to detect. That's tough. That really, really is challenging. And, you know, my experience out in Mandan, it's, it's often slow to change. You know, we can deploy management practices and I say, I'm not even gonna get excited about measuring carbon until year six of this practice. And sometimes it takes 10 years to be able to, to detect that change. And so uh, it's slow to change. The benefit, and I'm a big fan of this, is that once you've got your samples, you've got an archive. You can always go back to it, which is important when new, sort of new technologies come on board that allow us to do things more efficiently. Now, don't let my grumpiness get in the way. There are engineers that are working on this that are doing some things that, that suggest that we might be maybe even able to make these measurements in the field in real time using MIR spectra and special penetrometers. It's, it's incredible. So we'll have to watch this, but there's a lot of good people working on it. But if we do it the traditional way, there's a lot of, lot of caveats we have to consider. This point Mark just made is a great one and probably a good place to round out today's episode. Increasing soil carbon takes a long time, and there are a lot of variables at play, some of which you simply can't control. It's hard to, to access that at the same location, you know, go back to the same location for 30 years, right? I mean, that takes a lot of resources. So a lot of what we know about that rate is from studies that have used kind of creative tricks in research to access that information. And so that's kind of what I'm going to draw from, and then you can kind of build off that. But, you know, I look at, at publications and research that indicates that in order to increase your soil organic carbon content by one percentage point, and again, if you're thinking about soil organic matter, just double that, just kind of off the cuff, double it. So 2% increase in organic matter or 1% increase in organic carbon takes between 10 and 15 years in kind of a northern Great Plains ecosystem. And that would be under best management practices, minimal tillage, maximum plant productivity. So whether or not it's a perennial or incredibly intensive crop rotations. Right. And I think, you know, I'd agree with you there in that and the big variable in all of this is really the weather. You can kind of do a thought experiment where, you know, say you're starting with a fairly degraded condition. Okay, so it's almost primed to really be able to, to sequester a lot. And you got a you know, good balance of clay and silt particles and so forth. And say you transition that to a, a perennial system that you're overlying grazing and you get some fantastic productivity you know, initially, you know, and, and maybe the management, you, know, you have some things in the management to facilitate that. You might be able to accelerate that, you know, to maybe even under a decade, perhaps, but it, it is so very much 
controlled by the things that we don't control. That biomass productivity has a big part, unless you're, you know, unless it's what's technically feasible, if you've got irrigation and you've got all these controls and so forth, then, then you can probably speed it up even more. But um, I think that, you know, the, the, the management is, is one component and you can align everything together really well, but the rate at which you'll really be able to increase that is largely due to the weather. Well, thank you so very much to Dr. Mark Liebig and Dr. Kaylee Gash for being on today's show. This is such timely information, especially in an environment where we're hearing all sorts of noise out there about carbon. If you want to watch the entire Capturing Carbon workshop, which includes full presentations from both Mark and Kaylee, as well as their slides, we'll make sure we include a link for that in the show notes for today's episode. Thanks so much to our sponsors of Soil Sense, the North Dakota Corn Council, the North Central Agriculture Research and Education Program, the North Dakota Wheat Commission, the North Dakota Soybean Council, the North Harvest Dry Bean Association, the North Dakota Barley Council, and Anheuser-Busch. If you're getting value from this podcast, please go ahead and leave us a rating and review on Apple or wherever you listen to podcasts. And we'd love it if you share your favorite episode on Twitter with the hashtag SoilSense. We'll be back with another great episode next week.